In Exodus 16, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 together. We all have a fatal flaw. So what is that? Fatal flaw refers to an aspect of your character, of one's character, that will lead to their downfall. It's a weakness that cannot be glanced over. It's not a handicap that slows process. It's a debilitating disease that can stop you dead in your tracks. For example, think of Samson, a great judge of Israel that was supposed to lead his people in the way of the Lord. But instead of leading his people, he gave in to his fatal flaw, a love for foreign women. This flaw is ultimately his downfall when they lead his heart away from the Lord and Delilah cuts his hair and his strength is taken away. But what is our fatal flaw? Our fatal flaw is the same as Israel's that we see in our text. We're grumblers. We're whiners. We think we know better than the Lord. We believe that sin can satisfy us in our flesh and sin tell us every day there's something better for you over here. Don't listen to that pastor. He doesn't know your situation. Go ahead and say you read 100% of the reading for this semester. It doesn't matter. The fatal flaw of every man and woman is that we are keen to listen to the lies of sin rather than the truth of God. And our text displays this for us, so let's read it. Starting in verse 1, we'll read down to verse 12. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, and say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word and how it reveals the sin that we have within. Help us to pay attention to this text, pay attention to the pattern of Israel of falling back into grumbling and complaining against the Lord. 
uh, help this to be an encouraging passage, an encouraging message to us today that we can flee sin and run to righteousness because of what your son has done for us on the cross. I thank you for your grace. I thank you how you care for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So how can I say that your fatal flaw is the same as Israel's? You're not actively trying to return to slavery. You're not begging for more food. Surely you would recall the miraculous provision of safe travel through the Red Sea, away from Pharaoh and his army. Surely we would remember God turning bitter water into sweet water for us to drink and to water our animals. And surely we would remember the oasis that God led us to. But we do forget. In fact, our desire to return to bondage is worse than Israel's. So let's compare our desires with Israel's to see if that's true. Israel shows us how quickly our hearts can turn from the Lord. They've just been delivered from Egypt. Remember, this is the place where they were slaves of Pharaoh. They were given impossible tasks to complete. They were beaten and tortured. They had their children ripped from them and murdered. Then they see God dole out judgment on Egypt. He sends the plagues to show Egypt who he is and that he will have glory over them. He brings the people to the Red Sea and parts it like a curtain for them to pass through. But when Egypt tries to pursue them, the Lord crushes them. Israel even sings to the Lord about the glory of his judgment. But now in our passage, we see that they've forgotten almost immediately these great things that the Lord has done. They grumble about water in the passage before, and the Lord provides. That's not enough. They grumble about food here, and now they're even wishing that they had died in Egypt, where at least their bellies were full. Let's put this in perspective. Let's put Israel in our shoes. Let's put them on Midwestern's campus. So say it's a Wednesday morning. Israel attends an Old Testament survey class, or a Testament survey class for them. After that class, they they learn about the Abrahamic covenant, how that affects them. They go on to chapel. In chapel, they sing songs like Christ, the true and better Adam. And they hear a wonderful sermon about God's deliverance from evil and how they should live in obedient, obedient lives in light of that. So during chapel, they sing their hearts out. They're earnest in how they sing, in their prayers. They nod along to the sermon. They say amen every once in a while. But as soon as chapel's dismissed, they walk up to the cafeteria and start complaining about tacos again. Is this not what we do? We probably did it yesterday. We dwell on the glory of God for a little, but we quickly turn to our own selfish desires. And we grumble when we don't get what we want. Our desire to return to bondage is real, and it's worse than Israel's because our deliverance from sin is greater They were delivered from a nation. We are delivered from sin forever, a final deliverance. And that we want to go back to that enslavement is baffling. This desire to turn back to bondage isn't always noticeable. It can be slow and methodical. You don't feel the same way about the Lord like you used to. You stagnated in your faith. You stop reading your Bible as much because you're busy. You have school books to read. We find more and more excuses to not attend Sunday worship with the church that we have covenanted to. 
It may not be intentional, but you're no longer following the Lord's commands. You're following your own commands, your own desires, your own will. Is Christ not glorious? Was he not born of a virgin, the Son of God? And did he not perform many miracles to prove that he reigns over us? Why then do we live as if he is not God and does not reign over us? Did Christ not die and remove the chains of sin from us? Why then do we return to the same old sin ready to shackle our wrists? We say that we love Christ and his commands, but our actions continually contradict this. But we should praise God. We should praise God that his grace outweighs our fatal flaw. Because of his grace, we do not say to one another, don't you dare sin. If you sin, that's it. It's over. We don't say that. We say to one another, you don't have to sin anymore. You have been set free. Yahweh freed Israel from bondage to serve him. Christ has freed us from our weary loads to take on his easy yoke. My message this morning is simple. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Don't sin. I don't want you to hear this as some burdensome task or some burdensome command. I want you to hear this as a freeing exhortation. Sin no more because it no longer has you bound in chains. Sin no more because Jesus pulled you away from that wicked taskmaster. Jesus tells us in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. We now present our members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And then John, in his first epistle, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, he tells us, You know that he came in order to take away sins. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The expectation for a Christian is to live a life that is characterized by holiness. To sin no more and walk in a life worthy of your calling in Christ You must understand the lies that sin whispers to you, that your flesh whispers to you. Sin always wants to convince you that you are safe and secure. Your flesh tries to tell you the joys you're experiencing now in it are lasting joy. Sin wants to make itself out as a wonderful and trusted leader. Sin will try to become the Lord of your life. And in this text, we see these three lies. We see these lies. We see three lies in our text about sin. In the previous verses, so chapter 15, 22 through 27, Israel began the journey to Sinai. They leave the beach of the Red Sea, and they're on the way. God is leading the people into the wilderness to test them. In our text today, we see that the Lord tests Israel further, and they fail again. This time it's worse, as they see the bondage in Egypt as better than servitude to the Lord. In this text, God proves himself to be a faithful, be faithful in a miraculous way, even though his people are faithless. We must learn not to believe the lies about sin that Israel believes. We must go and sin no more because we know, and we know it to be true, that the Lord is better. This text gives us three lies about sin. Let's look at lie number one, verses one through three. Sin is a source of satisfaction. Sin is a source of satisfaction. Our text wastes no time in showing us how quickly Israel's attitude changes back to dissatisfaction. 
Israel has just left Elim. So Elim is an oasis where they found shelter and refreshment. And they're leaving this with fresh legs. It serves as almost an appetizer to the promised land that they will get to eventually. Almost immediately, though, when they sense potential trouble, when they see there's no food anywhere, they return to grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Their attitude in this portion of our text reveals two times when seems seems preferable. Sin seems better in times of blessing. It's what we see in verses 1 through 2, and sin seems better in times of suffering in verse 3. But let's focus our attention first on verses 1 and 2. Look back at that text. It says, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Israel takes off from Elim with fresh legs. So they're rested, they're well-fed, they're well-watered, they're looking to get back on the journey. God has proven himself faithful. They've experienced his blessings in a grand way. And the text tells us that they enter into the wilderness of sin. Now, the wilderness of sin, sin is not the sin you're thinking of. That would have made an excellent preaching point, but sadly it does not. Sin is just talking about an uninhabitable place. And so they come into this place. You can't grow food. You can't find food. It's a valley that leads to the foot of Sinai. So when they're in this valley, most likely they see the Lord in the pillar of cloud and they look past him and they can see Sinai in the distance. Just as they're settling into their trip, they begin to grumble. A sinful feeling of discontent has seeped into their minds. And why? They have it so good right now. But we've seen this before. Even, in, even leaving paradise, they begin to grumble. But we've seen grumbling in paradise. Look back at the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have it made. It's a beautiful world that was theirs to have dominion over. There's no corruption whatsoever. They're sinless people. There's no calamity that could fall upon them. It wasn't enough for them, though. They were deceived into thinking that disobeying God was better than the paradise that they lived in now. They believed this lie, and it led to their fall. And they were sinless. We must not believe this lie. Brothers and sisters, do not take your current situation for granted. Look at where we are. We're sitting in a room where twice a week, the last... 14 weeks, there's been faithful brothers saved by grace proclaiming the life-transforming word of God. You've been fed week in and week out. You've been attending Sunday service, I hope, being fed and equipped. We have the privilege of studying the scriptures at an institution marked by a love for Christ and his church. That's not normal. I promise you, in spite of whatever your sinful flesh is telling you, there is not one sin that is better than this. Sin is so twisted that it can take the most holy of moments and tell you, I can make it better. Don't believe it. In verse 3, we see that Israel descends even further into sin's lies. As soon as trouble comes, they want to fly back to their bondage. Look at verse 3. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, or you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Look at the shocking comparison that Israelites make. They say it would have been better for the Lord to have killed them in Egypt rather than to lead them out to the wilderness. And why do they say that? It's because their bellies were full in Egypt. 
They forget about the torture. They, their minds have been warped by the sin, by the grumbling, to think that bondage is better than freedom. They even go so far as to accuse Moses of bringing them out there to die. Iniquity has twisted their minds. Instead of thanking God for delivering them by his hand, which is what they were singing earlier, they now ask to die by his hand. Their failure to see shows their blindness to the Lord's fulfilling his promise to Abraham and leading them to a promised land. God has been nothing but faithful to deliver and provide by the power of his hand over and over again. And this light momentary affliction that they're experiencing has convinced them that slavery is better than freedom. We must guard ourselves from this kind of thinking. School and studies are going to be hard. They're going to be difficult. Church life is going to get messy and full of heartache. There will be times of great difficulty. It may even be now. But this does not mean that the Lord has changed. The Lord does not change. You do. You are mutable. The Lord is not. All suffering is for your good. He tells us this, that suffering is a gift. Romans 5 says that this gift of suffering leads to endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. So do not fall back into sin in response to hard times. Fall into the arms of Christ. Fall into his grace. Beg that he be there with you. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. It's Romans 6, 6 through 7. Our hope after this life is a good one. What makes heaven heaven, what makes it some place that is good, is because Christ will be there and sin will not. We hope in that. We strive to, to get to that place where we are with Christ and without sin. Some of us may be here today and have never been told no. Every major goal, desire that you've wanted in life, you've received. Maybe they haven't been bad goals. Maybe you had a great family, good parents. Maybe you're doing well in school. You've been married. You've gotten married to the man or woman that you hope to. You've had beautiful children, and you have the dream job. What will you do if all of these things are taken away, or even one of them? What if you don't get married? What if you don't have children? Maybe the Lord takes away a parent, takes away a spouse, or even one of your children. How do we respond to that? Will we respond as the Israelites when they just miss a meal? Will we follow Job's wife's advice and curse God until we die? Or will we say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is he our treasure and our ultimate aim? Or will we turn away from him when we miss a meal along with Israel? The Lord should be our hope and to see him and be like him is our hope. Sin cannot satisfy us in times of spiritual thirst or hunger. It is, a poor, it is a poor means of celebrating blessing, and it's a poor source of comfort in times of suffering. Seek Christ, our living water, our bread of life, for our satisfaction. He's an eager to supply our needs. 
What does it look like in real time to fight the lies of sin? In good times and in the bad. You stare at the face of Christ in Scripture and plead with God to show, him, show you his glory. That's what we must commit ourselves to, is to being in the Scriptures daily, to hide them in our heart. And when we don't feel like we're close to the Lord, we beg the Lord to come close to us, to show his glory to us, like Moses asks for. Show us your glory. From this part of the text, we move on to the Lord's response as well as Moses's. In this next lie we will examine, sin is found to be a worthless guide. God sets up leaders for our good, and he will continue to be faithful to his faithless people. Look at verses 4 through 8. In verses 4 through 8, we see lie number 2. Sin is a trustworthy voice. Sin is a trustworthy voice. When sin bubbles up in our life, what can typically happen is for us to start playing the blame game. We see that in Genesis 3. She told, me to, she told me to eat it. I can't believe he did that. I don't agree with that decision my pastor made. Sin gives us perceived liberty to go against the authorities in our life that God has placed over us. Ultimately, the blame game only covers up the truth that our sin is ultimately against God. Verse 4 through 8 proves to us that sin is not trustworthy in two ways. Sin cannot care for our well-being, and sin is ultimately against God. Look at verses 4 through 5. Sin does not care for your well-being. Sin always seems to have your best interest at heart. When we are doing what we want, it feels good. It always runs out. Whether in this life or the next, sin will not sustain us. It will not please us forever. Verse 4 tells us that even in the midst of his people's rebellion, he is going to care for them. God is going to do this in two ways. He's going to care for their physical well-being and their spiritual well-being. He will provide food daily. And the reason he gives for doing this is so that he may test the people to see if they will trust him, if they will obey his word. The test plays out like this. We can gather it from the text. God is going to give instruction on how long to store food. Manna will be on the ground in the morning. How long do they keep it? And when do they gather it? They won't be able to store food past the day that they gather it, except on the sixth day. And they gather twice as much on the sixth day because they are to rest from work on the Sabbath. This is a simple command that he gives, simple instructions. We see if we keep reading 13 through 36, they fail. He gives them these laws for their good, though. This is what they do. This is what it's teaching them. It's teaching them dependence on the Lord. Don't hoard food, he says because I'm going to be faithful to provide it day after day. And if you read verse 35, you see that he provided manna every day for 40 years until they reached the promised land. He provided food every single day. Don't work on the Sabbath so that you may rest. And not gathering food, not being prepared it requires that you trust God to provide even in days that you can't work. It's not in your power to provide for yourself and your family. You must trust the Lord to take care of you, to provide for you. Brothers and sisters, gratifying the desires of the flesh will never be good for you. Paul tells us 
that the wages of our sin are de- is death. When we eat sin's food and rest in sin's muck, the wages we earn are death and torment. And when we live on bread alone, not on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, we will live in eternal bliss. So let us turn our attention to verses 6 through 8 and see Moses' first response to Israel's grumbling. Sin is ultimately against God. And these verses 6 through 7, they should surprise us and they should surprise Israel. Moses and Aaron tell them, they end what they, they're delivering this promise, this command from the Lord, and they end it by saying, because you have heard, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Weren't they grumbling against Moses and Aaron in verse 2, though? Yes, but in the grand scheme of things, when they are voicing their displeasure in men that God has placed in front of them to lead them, their complaint is not just against them, but it is against God. Sin is always ultimately against the Lord. David understands this reality in Psalm 51. We're familiar with this psalm. Here he is confessing and repenting of his sins that he committed against Bathsheba and her husband. But he does not list his wrongs against each person. He's confessing to God. And he says in verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So when we grumble against the lost world, or when we grumble against our pastors, our professors, our supervisors, if they're leading us right, if it's just something you don't agree with or you think you could do it better, but when we are displeased with what the Lord has provided us, that is ultimately against him. Sin always posits itself as a better leader. I would never leave you into such an uncomfortable situation. With me, you would live a life free of any inconveniences. This is a lie. Sin is not trustworthy. It will lead you directly to disobey the word of the Lord. Sin will try to put itself in the place of God, your church. Sin speaks to us every day. It can be from your phone to billboards, to TV shows, to movies, morning classes. You must combat the voice of sin with the voice of God. Seek wisdom in the scriptures. Take advantage of the ministry of your church to equip you. Attend every Sunday. Go to Sunday school classes. Go to the small groups. Constantly take in the wisdom of the Lord to be made like him. Sin's verbal assault never stops. So don't break from taking in his wisdom. The final lie that Israel faces and is undone by is this, that sin is a faithful Lord. This is lie number three, verses nine through 12. Sin is a faithful Lord. The final verses show us that sin is not a faithful Lord. We know, that, we know this because Yahweh is faithful to his unfaithful people. Here we see three things that sin cannot do. Sin does not hear your pleas. When you are looking for help, it is not sin that comes to your rescue. It only accuses you. It only pushes you away. Second, sin has no glory to reveal. We see in the text that the people see the glory of God in the cloud. Sin has nothing but decay. In the end, it's just decay. But God will show us his face and we we look to see his face. And thirdly, sin offers no solution. Sin lures you in, but as soon as you rebuke it, it bites you. As soon as you fall into its trap, it asks, what have you done? But when you sin, God has forgiven that. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. 
and he gives us bread. In our passage, we see that he draws them near, and he doesn't draw them near to rebuke them, to scold them, but he draws them near to say, I'm going to give you food. So in conclusion, we've seen our fatal flaw. We believe sin can satisfy. We believe these three lies about sin, that sin is a source of satisfaction, a trustworthy voice, and a faithful Lord. Can we overcome this? Are we doomed to follow the same pattern as Israel of distrusting the Lord and wanting to do what is right in our own eyes? No. I can confidently tell you these things so that you may not sin. I have no hesitation in telling you to go and sin no more. And I want to offer us three ways that we can keep from sinning, three practices that we should, we should follow daily. Ultimately, your heart must be captivated by the Lord. You must be regenerate. But these three instructions can help combat sin's lies that we've seen and aid you in your efforts to love the Lord. First, remember the Lord's provision. When has the Lord not provided every breath you breathe and every meal you eat? Not one moment passes that the Lord has not willed to pass. Your existence depends on him. He will take care of you, so do what he says because it is best for you. And his ultimate provision comes through his son that he sacrificed for us. Second, remember the Lord's glory. The God who created and sustains all things is the same one who thought of you and loved you. He orchestrated history. He moved history so that the gospel would arrive in your ears and that you would believe in him. Remember his glory. His face shines brighter than the sun. By the word of his mouth, the stars lighted into existence. He grew the mountains and he sowed the roots of the trees into the ground. This is a God who deserves a people to worship him, who deserves a holy people to worship him. Joseph resisted Potiphar's wife because he remembered the glory of the Lord. He did not care about the consequences of his righteousness. He remembered that the Lord is better. His response to her is, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? And thirdly and finally, obey the good commands of God. It's not enough to avoid doing bad things. We have the privilege and responsibility to do what is good. For example, love one another. Love one another. This is a good command. When we love one another, it should remind us of the love that our Lord has for us. And the Lord has given us a headquarters for truth, the local church. It is here that we follow the instructions of Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any, of, any evil, unbelieving hearts, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what if you do sin? We obviously sin. We probably did it this morning. Is it over for us? Maybe we're here and we have not once lived as if Christ reigns and demands holiness. Yes, you do things that are Christianly, but you do not do it out of love for Christ. You do it for your own well-being because you like it. I may say these things to you so that you may not sin, but if you do sin, we have a hope in one who did not. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is amazing news. It's unthinkable news. How can Jesus be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins? It is not just to pass over sins. 
But it is because there is one who paid for them already. Our sin is paid for by Christ. And because he is unchanging in his love for us, he will always forgive us and cleanse us. And he's just to do it. We must repent and believe in him daily for our salvation and hope in him to see him, to be like him, and let that purify us. Brothers and sisters, because Christ reigns over death, sin, and Satan, I can exhort you with gladness, go and sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this morning and for your word and how it teaches us. Help us to be obedient children, to love you, and that would be our motivation to be like you, to see you one day. We thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.